resuming our series in First and Second Peter. We took last week off. We looked at a name of God, Elohim, the Mighty One. This is wonderful reminder that this is who Peter is ultimately pointing us to in his letter, his service and response to Elohim, the Mighty One. So we're going to resume. We're going to be in chapter 3. And chapter 3 starts off with one of those transition words you see in Scripture, likewise. And so it's built on the ideas in chapter 2. So we'll revisit those briefly at the start just to get back on the same page, back on this series track of thinking. Um, but before we begin, I just want to pray for a couple things just to make you guys aware. Uh, Mario, Pastor Mario is in the DR this week on a missions trip as part of, so that ordination process that I just went through, Mario is going through that as well. He's about a year behind. And so he is going on. So last year when I went on my trip and then came back and told you guys about it, Mario is currently doing that. So he's down in the DR this week. Be praying for him, be praying for his team, be praying for Jordan who's here. Um, and then also had the chance to meet someone right before the service, name of uh, Lucian, and it just seems like he and his family need some help. Uh, there, was, there was a bit of a language barrier, a bit of a communication, but the beautiful thing is that God understood every word. And so we're just gonna also pray for he and his family because he, he asked for those prayers. Uh, so please join me as we begin. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Uh, we thank you that we are created to need you. God, that we can't possibly get to a point in this life where, or we, we shouldn't get to a point in this life where we think that we're fine on our own. And so thank you for creating that need within us. And thank you for filling that need. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the leading of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling, the empowering of the Holy Spirit that makes this beautiful assembly uh, so rich and sweet. Lord, that we were brought together by him to be your church. Thank you for the price that you paid on the cross for us. The debt that you took upon yourself that was rightfully ours. We, we praise you for this, Lord. We thank you for giving us the right to be your children, for adopting us into your family, which is such a joyful thing. And so we, we praise you for that as well. In this time, we ask that this would be an act of worship, that opening your word would be done worshipfully, that, that we would listen with ears and with hearts desiring to worship you, desiring to be like you, God. We do, we lift up Mario, we lift up Jordan, uh, separated right now, God. We, we thank you that Mario has this chance to go on this trip. We ask that you sustain him on the trip, that you sustain Jordan this week as well. Lord, is that, uh, that half of the energy and, and the helper that is represented in marriage is in another country. And so we just, we ask that you bless Jordan this week. We ask that you bless Mario this week. God, may this be a rich time of first and foremost conforming him to your likeness. But then also using him and using the team that's down there to advance your kingdom, to spread the gospel, Lord. We, we pray for the harvest field that they are in, that you would use them to, to sow, to weed, to, to harvest, if that's where people are, God. But use this trip to advance the glory of Jesus in the Dominican Republic. And we also lift up Lucy and his family. Lord, you know what they need. You know the weights on their hearts as he was talking about extended family and um, I, I think health issues. God, whatever it is, if, if I missed it, you know, and we are grateful for that. And so would you place your hand on he and his family today, Lord, on, on his extended family, the people that he is very clearly concerned about. Um, use the interaction to, if they know you, 
Lord, ah, praise you for that, and we ask that you would use this to encourage them. If they don't know you, God, may this be a pebble in their shoe today where they can't stop thinking about it. Use this to draw them to the cross and to draw them to repentance and salvation, but we lift up he and his family as well. Lord, and now we, we do come back to your word, and we ask that you prepare us to read it, to listen, to be conformed to it, to submit to it, and to ultimately praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to ask you guys a favor before we begin. Two weeks ago was a tough message. I mean, anytime you're talking about submitting to authority, that's not something we like to hear. That steps on toes, that ruffles feathers. I asked last, or I asked when we preached that, hey, look, this is a tough topic. Come talk to me. Come talk to Mario. Come talk to the elders, right? This is another week. Peter writes about another topic that tends to push some people a little bit. So again, if, if you listen to this, if you engage with this and your toes get stepped on, your feathers get ruffled, you feel pushed a little bit, come talk to us. I would much rather I get a call from you that says, hey, I'm really ticked off by that message and you're angry at me, than you just be angry at me and not talk to me. So if this is hard, if this is a tough one to engage with, talk to us, talk to Joe, talk to the guys in leadership here. We want to have these conversations. We don't, we don't want to avoid them uh, because this is part of God's word. And so the expectation for God's word ought not to be that it will always be easy and fun to read, but that God will use it to make us holier. And that is a beautiful thing. And so let's start in 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning with verse 1. And like I said, it begins with the transition word, likewise. And so what that's telling us is that the ideas introduced in, in the previous chapter, chapter 2, are still the foundation for this thought here. And so this section, if you recall, begins back in chapter 1, verse 22, where he says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. And so he says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, here is the personal transformation you ought to see. And that was the remainder of chapter 1. Then in chapter Chapter 2, he transitions and he says, okay, here's the personal transformation. Now here is the transformation you ought to see in your behavior as you engage with the unbelieving world, still under that umbrella of having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. And now he starts to really wrap up that idea. And so we've moved from personal transformation to corporate church relating to the unbelieving world. And now he's talking about how spouses relate to one another. And so in this final section, you'll see over the next two weeks, He's now looking at, okay, we've looked at how Christians are individually transformed. We look at how Christians together interact with the unbelieving world. Now in this final section to that idea, he's looking at, okay, here's how Christians relate to one another, having been purified by obedience to the truth. And so that's what he's beginning with here where he says, likewise. And he says, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What we're going to do with this passage is what you should do with every Bible passage. We're going to set aside our own desires, and we're going to say, okay, God, what does your word say about this holistically? And we're going to look at it. And let me add this reminder that we looked at two weeks ago. This is not to be used. This is a passage that gets abused. This is a passage that gets abused in multiple directions. So because it gets abused, we have to be aware of the abuses, and we're going to look at it. We're going to look at specifically what this passage is not saying. But we also can't be the type of people who, well, just because something gets abused means I'm going to reject what's true about it entirely. So we're just going to start. We're going to start with the first verse. We're going to go through. We're going to see what does God's word say? What is God's word not saying? And in all of it, the prayer is going to be that we are worshiping God through this, through our submission to his word, and that he is using it to make us holier. Okay, fair? All right. So what I see in this passage, what we see in this passage, what we see demonstrated throughout Scripture is that God designed male headship. God's system of authority in the family, in the church, is male headship. This is not a question of worth. This is not a question of ability. This is not diminishing women's abilities to make decisions. This is not belittling. This is not insulting. This is not an issue of any of that. This is an issue. This is a subject of God's designed system, which we see was designed from the beginning in Genesis. And as a result of sin entering the world, we desired a rejection of this system. You go back to Genesis 3:16 and he says to the woman he said I will surely multiply your chain I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you and that phrase your desire shall be contrary it can also be translated as your desire shall be for or your desire shall be against if you move forward one chapter in genesis to genesis 4 you see if you do well will you not be accepted and if you do not do well sin is crouching at the door its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it it's the same hebrew words it's the same hebrew idea so from the beginning we see that god designed male headship but a consequence of sin is a rejection of this system first corinthians eleven three. but i want you to understand that the head of every man is christ the head of a wife is her husband and the head of christ is god ephesians 5 22 and 24 through 24 wives submit to your own husbands as to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Titus 2, 4 and 5, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. You cannot deny male headship when you look at Scripture. I believe it's been laid out from the start. This is not an abusive system. And you can't really talk about one aspect of this without talking about every aspect of this. So we're going to look at this more in depth when we get down to verse 7. But did you catch what it said in Ephesians 5? 
where the husband and the wife's relationship is compared to the church in Christ. And so this isn't a submission where husbands, we should then be like, I'm the man. Do what I say. No, we have to look at Jesus as the model of this. And so when we consider this relationship, it is one born out of deep love, out of pure love, out of sacrifice. I mean, really, husbands, we're going to keep looking at this, but just a preview, think of what Jesus did for the church. That's our standard as men. And so when we think of ourselves as the church submitting to Christ, it's not done out of, okay, fine, Jesus. You don't really care about me. No, it's, man, you love me more than anybody. You gave your life for me, so it is a joy to come under your authority because I know that what you want is what's best for me. And so this is what he's laying out here in this letter. And I mentioned that this can be abused. It gets abused. So when we understand this idea of wives be subject to your husbands, and then he goes on and he gives some specific details of what that may look like or what that may include, I think it's equally valuable to identify what this passage is not saying. He says, do not let your adorning be external. He is not saying, women, you can't wear jewelry. You can't want to look nice. You can't. He's not saying a legalistic, oh, that woman has her ears pierced? Well, clearly she is in defiance of God. No, that's legalism. That's an abuse of this verse. That is not what he's getting at when he says, do not let your adorning be external. What he's getting at is an improper obsession with external appearances at the expense of or instead of internal character. What he's calling the women to is that, look, your heart should be to live a life that reflects Jesus. Your first and primary focus, he talks about the hidden person. That's a, that's a phrase that was used for the soul. That word for soul is your inner passions, your desires, the essence of who you are. So what he's saying in this letter is not, hey, you can't want to look nice. He's saying to the women, is your primary concern to be conformed to the character of Christ? So don't let that idea get abused. He calls for women to have a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle is a word that not, I mean, we all bristle at the word gentle. Like, we don't like the idea of gentleness. But it's not a weak word. We had a great discussion. Any of the guys here who were at the men's Bible study for 1 John, remember that week where we talked about gentleness? And we talked about how gentleness is not an absence of strength. I mean, when I'm holding my one-year-old, oh man, she's one. When I'm holding my daughter, right, I am holding her gently. Now, how many of you in that moment would be like, wow, Violet is stronger than Sam? No, not at all. So gentleness is not an absence of strength. That word gentle, it means humble. That's what he's getting at. He's calling women to be humble in their marriages which is really what we're all called to as believers, is a life of humility. So he's not introducing a new idea. He's reminding people of this core characteristic that we are called to. Why? Because Jesus was humble. Philippians 2, talking about Jesus, it says, what did he do? He humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of obedience, even death on a cross. So that's what he's getting at when he says gentle, I mean, think about Proverbs 31, the classic passage of a Proverbs 31 woman. If you read the descriptions of a godly woman in Proverbs 31, you see a woman of significant strength in character and impact. 
So gentleness should not be abused for, well, you can't have an opinion. You can't, like, gentleness is not a negative thing. Gentleness is a beautiful thing because it's humility. It's reflecting Jesus. This is what he calls wives to, what he calls women to in this passage. And then he says quiet spirit. He also calls wives to have a quiet spirit, the women to have a quiet spirit. This does not mean women cannot have a voice. This does not mean women don't get to have an opinion. Women don't get to have perspectives on things. It does not mean, husbands, you should never consult your wife like, hey, Adam, this is what we're doing this year. This is where we're going on vacation. This is how we're spending our money. You get no say in this. That's not what he's saying. That, that word, quiet spirit, where it's talking about it, it's the exact same word used in 1 Timothy 2. Or in 1 Timothy 2, it says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That word means appropriately tranquil, appropriately peaceful. We are called to be people of peace. And that's what it means by quiet. What it, what it means, when you expand the definition, it means not stirring up needless friction. So when he's calling wives to, to model this with a gentle and quiet spirit, he's saying, don't be needlessly antagonistic. Don't be, another way you can translate this word is agitation. So don't be an agitated person who likes to stir up agitation. You know, if you think of, you think of a, a pond, right, and the water's still and calm, and then just for the heck of it, I'm going to throw rocks in and, and agitate the waters. He's saying, no, don't be an agitated person. Don't be someone who is always stirred up, always bristling, always insulted, always, hey, did you hear what they said? Okay, now we have a problem. Now I'm going to stir up further agitation. That's what he means by quiet. And so when you look at what Peter is calling wives to, what he's reminding the women of the church to with this letter, it's really what the whole church has been called to. We've been called to humility. We've been called to be people of peace. And so it's not anything that should blow our minds, but it's something that we need to be reminded of. And we need to understand the passage so that we can't let it be abused, but we can look at it and we can learn from it and we can be conformed to it as we submit to God's word. And then he transitions on from there and he then starts talking about the husbands. And in verse 7, he says, likewise. So again, based on these same ideas, based on this same principle, based on this same vein of thinking, these same truths, he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And we see that he reminds the men, he reminds the husbands that you are called to owe two specific gifts of love to your wife. Understanding and honor. I mean, honor. This is the same letter where just a few passages ago, you remember a few sermons ago, we looked at where Peter writes about the honor of being the royal priesthood? So this is not a small thing. Honoring your wife is not a, yeah, I complimented her, what is it, 2022? Back in 99, I gave her a compliment. No, honor is a deliberate bestowing and pouring out on of the best. And this is what he calls husbands to. This is what scripture calls husbands to time and time again. 
Ephesians 5, that same passage where we just looked at verses 22 through 24 in Ephesians 5. Then in Ephesians 5, you also see this starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Husbands, is your wife nourished by you? I mean, men, are you leading your wives in such a way that she is nourished by you? That what she needs for growing in holiness, and make no mistake, it begins with Jesus. It begins with surrender to the Holy Spirit. It's got to be God. But in your role as a husband, are you providing what she needs to grow in sanctification the same way that Jesus did it for the church? In your marriage, who's the first one to open the Bible? In your marriage, who's the first one to say, man, we need to go before the Lord in prayer? Hey, we need to gather with the body. We need, I mean, who is the one leading the call to holiness in your marriage? Husbands, nourish your wives. Nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Proverbs 15.18, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Rejoice in your wife. Think about that word rejoice. Think about the deliberateness of that word rejoice. I mean, other uses that we see of rejoice in Scripture, when David is dancing in the street, celebrating God. It says David rejoiced in all his might. This is a huge word that husbands are called to do to their wives, to rejoice. I mean, if you asked your wife, hey, do I rejoice in you? Do you know that I delight in you, that you bring me joy like nothing else apart from Christ? This is what husbands are called to. This is what Jesus does for the church. And so our standard has to be that sacrificial model of Christ. Prairie Peddler's coming up. I know you love to go with your mom, with your aunt, with your sister, whatever. I was supposed to go play basketball with the guys at the park. I was supposed to go hunting. You know what? I'm going to sacrifice my schedule so that you get to do what you want first. We had an extra 50 bucks, we had an extra 100 bucks, whatever. I wanted a new palm router, you wanted this. Yeah, you know what? My thing can wait. You get first priority, you get first dibs. You get my best, you get my all. This is the standard that husbands have been called to, to sacrifice ourselves for the holiness of our wives. 
when there's a women's Bible study, when there's mom's prayer, when there is anything that the corporate body is doing to further disciple women, men, you should be the first person pushing your wife out the door. Well, the kids need dinner made? Nope, I got it. Well, this needs to get done? Nope, I've got it. I have sacrificed. I have rearranged my schedule for your holiness. I will call you to scripture. I will call you to prayer because this is what matters to me because I rejoice in you and I delight in you and I want to see you growing in holiness. This is what Peter sets out as the standard for the men that he's writing to. This is no small thing. If you look at the statistics of what happens to a lost family when the three different levels of a family come to Christ, what happens to the rest of the family? It's crazy. So we've got a lost family. We've got the Wilson family. We've got Mike Wilson, Sarah Wilson, Logan and Sydney Wilson. They don't know Jesus. They really do. I'm just using them as an example. Logan or Sydney come to Christ. A child in a lost family comes to Christ. It's right around 5 to 7% of likeliness that other members of that family will come to Christ. Logan and Sydney don't come to Christ. Sarah comes to Christ. The wife comes to Christ. The mom comes to Christ. Now you're looking at around, depending on who you ask, right around 20% that the rest of the family will come to Christ. Mike comes to Christ. The father comes to Christ. The dad comes to Christ. Again, depending on who you ask, anywhere from 85 to 95% likelihood that the rest of the family will come to Christ. I don't think it's any coincidence. I said this to the guys at the Bible study. I said this to you all before. I don't think it's any coincidence that the highest engagement we've ever had of women with the word in this church in terms of gathering together, carving out time in their schedule to meet together and study scripture together, I don't think it's any coincidence that that came after the men demonstrated it for a year. Men, are you setting the standard for holiness? Can your wives look to you as an example? Can the younger generations look to you as an example? I mean, are we loving our families like Christ loves the church? We have to realize this matters because what does he conclude this verse with? He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So many times we say, oh, well, if I want to have the right life, then I need to pray rightly. And I think that's true. I think a, a right and proper prayer life is essential to a right life. But do we realize that God on multiple occasions says, hey, if you want to have a good prayer life, then you better get your personal life in order. He says this, he says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing them honor so that your prayers, what? may not be hindered. We see this again, 1 Peter 4, 7. We'll look at this in a few weeks more in depth, but he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Psalm 34, 15 and 16, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. I mean, have we ever considered the notion that biblically we see God talking about, there are prayers I am more inclined to listen to. There are cries that I will turn my ear to. There are cries that I will set my face against. That your behavior can hinder your prayer life. 
And one of those ways for husbands specifically is to not live with your wives in an honoring, understanding way. John Piper phrases it this way. He says, your prayer life depends in part under God and his enabling grace, always under God, always by his grace alone. But he says, your prayer life depends in part on how you choose to live at home and at work and in your private life of solitude. Grudem in his commentary on, on this letter says, so concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding and loving way with their wives that he interrupts his relationship with them when they are not doing so. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way bestowing honor on her. To take the time to develop and maintain a good marriage is God's will. It is serving God. It is a spiritual activity pleasing in his sight. Men. You ever felt like your prayers were bouncing off the ceiling? Like what you were praying for, what you were desiring? I mean, do you ever feel like your prayer life is just stagnant, dead in the water? What's your relationship with your spouse like? Are we doing things that hamper our own prayer life? Peter lays this out for the church. But married or not, kids, if you're in here and you're like, oh, man, I'm years away from marriage. I'm past marriage. Like, married or not, we see the ultimate lesson in what Peter is saying to both the wives and the husbands, what he's really calling them to. He's calling them to an eternal perspective. And this is what must be at the forefront of all of our hearts and minds always. Husbands, we should listen to those verses about wives and learn from them. Wives, you should listen to that verse about husbands and learn from them. Kids, singles, whatever, learn from this passage because what he's all ultimately calling the people to is an eternal perspective. To the women, he contrasts the external, the outward, with an imperishable beauty. He says, look, don't be obsessed with the temporary. Don't be obsessed with what is fleeting, with what is dying. You have to understand this from a perspective of imperishable to the husbands, he lays this out, and then he, why? He says, since they are also heirs with you of the grace of life, eternity. Peter is calling the church ultimately to a mindset of God's kingdom, to a mindset that is focused on the eternal truths of this life. That is what he's calling the church to. So with that in mind, when we have an eternal perspective in our own life, what do we realize? We realize, wait a minute, I am the bride of Christ. So even as a man listening to this passage, wait a minute, I am the bride of Christ. I, Sam, I, Joe, I, Mark, I, Bruce, I am the bride of Christ. Women, you are the bride of Christ. Kids, you are the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. So with that eternal perspective, when we look at what Peter lays out for brides, we must then ask ourselves, okay, so does that describe me as the bride of Christ? Am I submitted to the bridegroom? Am I humble before the bridegroom? Am I not a person of agitation before the bridegroom? Am I more concerned with the superficialities of faith than with the true, pure character of Christ? Are we more concerned that our church, that Community Bible Church, looks nice, looks polished, looks well put together? Look at us, we all got our collar shirts on. Everybody's nice. We all look good on a Sunday morning. 
Are we more concerned with that or are we more concerned with, man, when I look at the people of Community Bible Church, I see Jesus. Are we outwardly adornment focused or inwardly focused? This is what Peter is calling the church to. This is what we see throughout Scripture. Because I can promise you the flip side of that. Okay, so in 1 Peter, we've got wives do this, husbands do this, the bridegroom does this. What does it say? Husbands, understanding and honor. What do we see about Jesus? To those he gave the right to become children of God. The honor of being the priesthood. Jesus has upheld bestowing honor as the bridegroom. I promise you that. Understanding we do not have a Savior who is unsympathetic to our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as us, yet was without sin. So we have a Savior who can empathize with us, a Savior who can relate to us, a Savior who knows what it's like to be afflicted. I can promise you that Jesus is upholding the understanding of the bridegroom. So Jesus, as the bridegroom, is fulfilling his part. The question is, church, as the bride, are we? When we consider this passage, are we the bride of Christ that we have been called to be? Make no mistake, husbands and wives, this should practically impact your marriage. This should be something that affects you day to day. But then as the church, as the big picture church, this should also affect us as well. And this should have an impact on us as well. Hey man, yeah, you can have a seat there. We'll talk, we're almost, we got about maybe 10 minutes left. Yep, perfect, thank you very much. Excellent. All right. We will finish this up. Because that's really what we've been called to, right? We've been called to a life shaped by an eternal perspective. To look like Jesus. To model ourselves after Jesus in every way, shape, and form. Whether that's in a marriage or not, we have been called to reflect Christ. And that is what drives this passage. With very real implications for the day-to-day. -day. It's beautiful and both the here and now and the eternal. So this week, as we consider this idea, in addition to the Deuteronomy plan we're working through, but this week, let's all read Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19. And look for the themes of this message. Look for the themes of this passage, these seven verses in 1 Peter. Look for them in Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19. And then the personal reflection. Okay, as the bride of Christ... Am I more concerned with my outward appearance of faith or with my internal character? Am I more concerned with looking like I have it all together or am I more concerned with truly resembling Christ? And the prayer idea is just, just keep applying acts as we seek to grow in prayer, understanding of prayer, how we engage with prayer, continue to apply the acts model. And then something specific for husbands, something extra for husbands this week. Do something that deliberately lets your wife know you rejoice in her. I mean, I'm not talking about like, oh yeah, I like you. I'm talking about husbands. Do something where your wife is like, wow, he rejoices in me. He is so excited to be married to me. He treasures this marriage. Husbands, that's on you this week, all right? So please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for who you are and how good you are to us. We thank you that you have given us this model. That Jesus demonstrated what we are called to. Ah, what a beautiful example we have to follow. So Lord, we praise you for that. 
Forgive us for when we neglect the model of Christ. Forgive us for when we allow our own opinions, our own ego to get in the way of that. Lord, humble your church, humble me, humble these people. Make us like Jesus in all things. And Lord, we do, we lift up the marriages of this church. Strengthen them. Make them holy. Use the marriages of this church to make the husbands and wives holy. We think of Dawson and Jerrica who just entered into marriage yesterday, Lord. We ask that you bless them as they begin this beautiful journey together, God. But make the marriages of this church holy. Make us like your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Hey everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.